0: Well, good morning again. So good that you're here on this beautiful fall weekend. I'm telling you, it doesn't get much better than this weekend. And I looked at the weather. We are in for a gorgeous couple of days. Please, please enjoy it. These are the sort of days, so fall is my favorite season. I love fall. I love the flavors of fall. I love the sports of fall most of the time. I'll talk about that later. Um, And and I just love the feel and the vibe of fall. I love sweatshirt weather. I just love it. And uh, these are the sort of days where as I'm walking around, you might hear me say something like, I live for this. This is my time of the year. I live for this time of the year. Maybe you've said something like that uh, at some point in your life. And this morning, as we're continuing our series in Philippians, we're gonna see some words that Paul wrote that indicate what he lived for. And we're gonna see that every single one of us lives for something. But how do we actually know what we live for? It's much easier to answer the question, what do you do for a living, than to answer the question, what do you live for? And yet the second question determines the direction, the course, and even the destiny of our lives. And so this morning, we're in Philippians chapter 1, and beginning in the very end of verse 18, Paul says, yes, I will rejoice. Remember, Paul is writing this letter from a jail in Rome awaiting execution, and yet the central theme of the letter is joy. Yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is, my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's a big verse this morning. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. Paul's having this sort of internal rhetorical monologue with himself. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh, in other words, to stay alive, is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Three things I want us to learn from this passage this morning, and the first one is this. Sorry. Everyone lives for something. Everyone lives for something. Now, how do we know what we live for? Years ago, I read this book by a professor at Calvin College. He's a Professor of philosophy, his name is James K. A. Smith. And in his book, You Are What You Love, he said this quote that has really stuck with me. He said, To be human is to be animated by and oriented towards some vision. Of the good life. Now, I know that's a sentence you got to sit with for a second. To be human is to be animated by and oriented towards some vision of the good life. What does that mean? Well, let's just break it down real quick. To be animated by means to be motivated, to set in motion, to be brought to life. So, what animates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? What gets your engine revving? What gets you excited? What keeps you going? What helps you endure? That's what animates you. Oriented toward speaks of the direction of your life. So what is your life directed towards? What is that final destination? What does it look like? Where are you headed? And then all of that is shaped by this last phrase, your vision of the good life. So in other words, every single one of us has something in front of them that causes them to be set in motion and directs and guides them. So it drives us and it guides us. So the question this morning is, what drives you and what guides you? And whatever that thing is, is your vision of the good life and it directs the way in which you live. Everyone is living for something. And in the passage that we just read, Paul makes it abundantly clear that he is living for Christ. Now, how do we see that? There's three things that Paul does here uh, and this could have been a sermon unto itself, but I'll just be quick. The first thing is that he rejoices in Christ, He starts this passage by saying, yes, I will rejoice. What are you rejoicing? Yesterday was one of the worst sports days in the history of my life. <laughs> it started with my favorite soccer team in England, Liverpool, losing to the worst team in the Premier League. A team they have no business losing to, and yet they lost. Then, do I dare mention the Syracuse-Clemson game? And then when it couldn't get much worse, the Yankees played. And by the time it was 5-0 in that game, I knew for my own mental health, I needed to turn the game off and watch something else. I would love to tell you that after a week of studying this passage, that your pastor did not lose his joy because of sports. But I also would not want to lie to you from here. What are you rejoicing? The truth is, is that there's so many things that have power over our joy, and yet Paul here is sitting in prison awaiting execution. He's, his name is being dragged through the mud by other itinerant preachers. He's being abandoned by people, and yet he says, I will rejoice because Paul's joy was not determined by his present circumstances or even his future possibilities. His joy was determined by Jesus Christ. He rejoiced in Jesus. Secondly, he relied upon Christ. It's interesting, something in the verse that I read maybe jumped out at you. He prays, I know that this will lead to my deliverance. But then just later in the sentence, he said, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, what's happening there? I thought Paul just said he's sure of his deliverance. Now he's saying Christ will be honored whether I live or I die. Is this that sort of praying out of both sides of your mouth? God, I know you can do it, but if you don't do it, it's okay. That's not this at all. Paul is saying, this is what I believe, that the deliverance that will come to me will come to me in one of two forms. It'll either come to me in a temporary form where I will be freed from this prison or it will come to me in a permanent form where I'll be freed from myself, freed from my sinful self and freed from this sinful world. And so Paul's greatest hope, his, he relied upon Christ, listen, not just for his power. He didn't just rely upon Christ's power, but he, replied, he relied upon Christ's plan it's one thing to rely upon his power and say God I know you, I know that you can. It's another thing to have the faith that the Hebrew boys had when they're about to be thrown into the fire and to say even if I know that my God can deliver me from this fire, but even if he doesn't, I will not bow the knee to your idol and to your statue. And so to 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 live for Christ is to rely upon Christ not just that he can get us out of things, but even if He doesn't get us out of things that he can be glorified through our suffering and even through our death. And that's what Paul says here I know that I'll be delivered one way or the other, and Christ will be glorified whether it's by life or by death. See, living for Jesus radically changes our perspective. Paul's joy is bound up with the salvation of his soul, not the outcome of his trial. He is rejoicing not in the possibility of getting out of jail, but he is rejoicing in the certainty of his salvation. And as long as we spend our lives rejoicing in the possibilities of what God can do, instead of rejoicing in the certainty of what God has done, our joy will always be at stake when life doesn't go our way. So, to rely upon Christ is to re- rely upon his power and his plan. And then the last thing that we see here in this passage is that Paul represents Christ. In verses 22 through 26, there's this sort of rhetorical self talk where it, it almost seems like Paul is thinking, should I die and should I live? Which one should I choose? And of course, it's not Paul's choice because our lives are in God's hands. So, Paul is not literally choosing between living and dying. Paul is saying, if it was my choice, which would I choose? And he comes to this conclusion that for me, it would actually be better to die because when I die, I'm immediately in the presence of God. I'm with Jesus, no longer suffering. I receive my treasure. I receive my reward. It would be better for me to die, but it's better for you if I live. Why? Because through you or through me, Christ can be formed and shaped in you. See, Paul is committed to this idea that he would not live for himself, but he would live for Christ, and so live for others. There's no disconnect between living for Jesus and living for others. You can't live for Jesus if you're not willing to live for others. And Paul knew that. So he rejoiced in Christ. He relied upon Christ. He represented Christ. Paul says, for me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. For me, for me. But what about for you? How do you know what you're living for? Well, this is a helpful framework. How would you fill in the second half of each of these in your own life? What do you rejoice in? What gives you the most joy? What do you have to remind yourself of when you're having a hard day? Is it Christ's goodness and his faithfulness and who he is? Or is it at least I have this at home? Or at least I have this sort of power? Or at least I'm not like that person? Or at least I have my health? Or at least I have this to look forward to? What do we, and there's plenty of things in this world that are worth celebrating and finding joy in. But what's the thing that gives us the greatest joy? What's our surest source of joy? What do you rejoice in? Second thing, how would you finish this? What do you most rely upon? The truth is, is many of us are guilty at times of relying upon ourselves more than Christ. Good, religious, church-going people who are exhausted with their religious efforts because they're not relying upon Christ. They're actually relying upon themselves, and they're never really sure if they've done enough, been good enough, been faithful enough. And then, who do we represent to this world around us? What are we known for? Everyone lives for something. What do you live for? The second big idea in this passage is that your living defines your dying. Your living defines your dying. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. You know, in the Greek, there's, there's no verb in that sentence. It, it wouldn't pass an English grammar exam. There's no verb. Here's literally how it reads in the Greek. For me, living. Christ, dying, gain. There's no verb. We put it in there to try and make it make sense. And what Paul is doing here is drawing a direct connection between living in Christ, dying, and gain, but also showing how that how we live informs how we die. Or what we live for informs what we are willing to die for, or what feels like death to us. There is a connection between living and dying. See, if you live for Christ, then Christ gives you the power to see even the sorrows and the struggles of your life as gain. One of the commentators says this, that the suffering that comes to a Christian is not a sign of God's neglect, but rather a proof that grace is at work in his or her life. 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says to his spiritual son Timothy, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trials and tribulations, but don't lose your hope. I have overcome the world. So living in Christ means he gives us the power to see that our suffering, see, Jesus didn't suffer so that you and I would never suffer. Jesus suffered so that our suffering would not be without meaning or purpose, and that it would not be without end. Jesus gives purpose and meaning to our suffering because even in our suffering, we are being shaped into the image of Christ. God uses our suffering, our struggle, and our sorrow to make us more like Jesus, to make us depend more on Jesus and less on ourselves. But also our suffering is not without end. There will be a day when all things will be made new. All the sad things will come untrue. Every tear will be wiped from our eyes and there will be no more sorrow and suffering. So Jesus suffered to give us that sort of hope. But the suffering that we endure is formative in our lives. And so if you live for Christ, listen, if you live for Christ, you will see even death as gain. But if you live for something else, anything else, you will define dying in a very different way. Let me break this down for us as clearly as I can. So I think there's four things that people tend to live for in this life other than Christ. Many, manif- many sort of ways that it shows up in our lives, but four kind of source things, four foundational things that we live for. And one of them, so living is Christ, dying is gain. Now let me ask you this. If living is power, for, to me, for, for me to live is power, then how do you define dying? If you live for power and influence, then dying is being weak. Or appearing weak. Dying is not being right. Dying is being questioned. Dying is not having access to people with power. Dying is not having whatever you think will give you power, whether it's money or talent or relationships or access. If, if for you living is power, then dying can feel like, or it can feel like you're dying when people disagree with you and kind of get in your way on your pursuit of power. Do you see how living defines dying? If you live for power, then it will feel like you're dying when you can't get it. Next one, control. If you live for control, if your verse says, for, to me to live, for me to live is control, then dying is obviously not having control. Or the outcomes of things you care about being in the hands of other people. You will feel like you're dying during the uncertainties of life. You'll feel like you're dying when you are struck with your inability to manufacture outcomes and manipulate people. You will feel like you're dying when other people are making their own choices and going their own direction, even though you would like them to do it differently. It'll feel like dying to you. One, uh, two more, approval. For me to live is approval, then dying is not being liked. It's not being let in. It's not fitting in. It's not getting in. It's not hearing what you need from other people. It's not getting what you need from other people. It'll feel like you're dying when you think of people knowing who you really are and not accepting you for who you really are. It'll feel like you're dying when you're overlooked by other people. Your living defines your dying. One more big one, comfort. If you're living for comfort, then dying is not having your needs catered to. Dying is when somebody inconveniences you or dares to interrupt your schedule. Dying is struggle and suffering and sacrifice. Dying is not having what you want when you want it. Dying is others not putting you first. Now, you know how I came up with this list of things? <laughs> By looking at my own heart. By looking at my own life, I mean, I just took a little glimpse into my own heart, and I said, what does it look like in David when he lives for power, when he lives for control, when he lives for approval, and when he lives for comfort? And these are the things that didn't, uh, here's the embarrassing thing, it wasn't hard to make these lists. It was embarrassingly easy to go, oh, wow, this is what it looks like in my life. Now, how does this show up in our lives? Remember, if living is power, then dying is not having it, and so on and so forth, the human will to survive is amazing, incredible. I've read stories of people on the Oregon Trail and people who have been stranded in the ocean and the things that people will turn to, the sort of, even the terrible acts that people will do in order to survive. It's incredible. The human will to live is remarkable. But that's true here too. If living is comfort, the things that you will do for comfort, you will, never, you will, you will do things you swore you never would do. If you live for power, you will find yourself doing things to secure power, keep power, hold on to power that you know are wrong, but your need to live, your internal survival instincts, it feels like living to you, so you'll do anything to live. The things that we do to live are some of the worst things that we do in our lives, and the things we will do not to die So when any of these things, power, approval, comfort, control, feel like they are threatened, like they are being taken from us, like somebody is an obstacle in our lives to that thing or a circumstance needs to change in order for us to get closer to it, the things that we will find ourselves doing to people, to ourselves, to people that we love, to our own family members is unbelievable. Why? Because our survival instinct kicks in and we say, well, if I don't have power, then I'm dying. So everyone lives for something. And our living defines our dying. And if everyone lives for something, then everyone has a master. Everyone has a god, which means everyone is a worshiper. Everybody's serving something or someone. And the Bible calls those things power, comfort, approval, and control. The Bible calls those things idols, false gods, things that promise something that they cannot deliver to us. And so if you live for these idols, they cannot give you the freedom that you think you can find. They promise you freedom while they simultaneously enslave you to themselves. They can't give you joy or peace because if you get it, well, or if you can't get it, then you're always in despair. But even if you do get it, it's never enough. You always need more. And they cannot give you life. These things, power, comfort, approval, and control, they cannot save you from death. In fact, they will cause you to die a million deaths before your time actually comes. Your living defines your dying. To live for me, to live as Christ, to die as gain. But if that first part of the sentence is finished differently for you and me, then the second part is finished too, differently too. What we live for defines our dying. And then the last thing this morning, and here's the good news, I'm going to ask Pastor Antonia to join me up here. His dying changes your living. Let's finish this passage together, beginning in verse 27. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ." engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. He says in this passage, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And we talk about the gospel, which is one of our key values, one of our super values here at Trinity. When we talk about the gospel, we're talking about the good news of who Jesus is, what he's done for us, the good news that Jesus did for us. What we can never do for ourselves. And Paul's instruction here is to live your life worthy of that gospel. What does it look like to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, he spells it out for us. He says, stand firm, stand strong, and stand together. This is what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel, to be firm and steadfast. Listen, one of the things that I'm more convinced in my life than ever as I've been in ministry for 20 plus years is that, is that just standing firm, just being steady is so underrated in the kingdom of God. Just show up. Just keep showing up. Show up and serve and stay. I read something recently about a pastor who was being installed, or no, he was being interviewed to become a pastor of a church in Washington, D.C., now a very influential church in D.C. His name's Mark Deaver. And he said, they asked him in his interview, What's your big strategy for church growth? What are your big programs? And he said, There's only four things that I can commit to I will preach, I will pray, I will love, and I will stay. I will preach, I will pray, I will love, and I will stay. And for some of us, the most spiritual thing we can do is stay, stay, stay with your family. Stay where God has planted you. Be faithful. We always say, well, the grass is greener. The grass is greener where you water it. Give your life to where God has planted you. Be rooted and stay and be steadfast and stand firm and stand together and stand for the gospel And Paul knew that many of the people who were reading this letter were going to suffer great things for the kingdom. And so he reminded them, when you suffer, it's not for your sake, it's for Christ's sake. Suffer for Christ's sake. Now, how do we suffer well? How does his dying change our living? We suffer well when we see him suffering on our behalf. When we look to the crosses and we see, Jesus, you suffered so much for me. And you suffered so that my suffering would not be without meaning and would not be without end. And so I can suffer for your sake. To live as Christ and to die is gain. Recently, I read a story of a man named Mehdi Dibaj who was imprisoned by the government of Iran in 1984 on the charge of apostasy because he converted from Islam to Christianity. The penalty for this crime, according to the Islamic law that ruled Iran, was Death. And this man languished in prison for 10 years before his trial was ever heard. And when he had his trial, they said, you can give a written defense. And his written statement of defense was simple and straightforward, and it finished this way. Jesus Christ is my Savior, and he is the Son of God. To know him means to know eternal life. I, a useless sinner have believed in his beloved person, in all of his words and miracles recorded in the gospel, and I have committed my life into his hands. Life for me is an opportunity to serve him, and death is a better opportunity to be with him. Therefore, I am not only satisfied to be in prison for the honor of his holy name, I am ready to give my life for the sake of Jesus, my Lord. He was sentenced to execution in December of 1993, under intense pressure from people in the West, including our State Department. He was released in January of 1994, but seven months later, he was found dead under suspicious circumstances in a Tehran park, the third Christian to be murdered in Iran after being released from prison. See, these words are not theory to many of our brothers and sisters around the world. When we sit here comfortable this morning and say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, it's a bumper sticker. It's a T-shirt. But for people around the world, it's life. It's everything. For me to live as Christ and to die is gain. And here's how it works. If Jesus is your vision of the good life, if Jesus is your vision of the good life, if, if, the, if he is what animates you and directs you, if he is what drives you and guides you, if Jesus is your vision of the good life, then the worst thing that death can do to you <laughs> is make your vision a reality it has no power Christine Kane I think is the one who said because of Jesus death has a has had a career change death used to be an executioner but now death is a gardener because you don't bury Christians you plant them for me to live is Christ and to die is gain how do we say all this how do we think of all this this simple truth that life is Christ having all of me, and death is me having all of Christ. Life is all about Christ. Christ, have all of me, have my heart, have my life, have my soul, have my spirit, have my mind, have my body, have all of me. And death, and death, we will have all of Christ. We see now in part, but that day we'll see in full. And when we see him as he is, we will be like him. (laughs) And we will serve him as we always wish we had. And he will heal all of our wounds. And he will lead us ever and ever into increasing joy. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain.